Could I just maybe ask Dr. Weinstein to interject your case? It's actually relevant to what you were just talking about, Neil, just maybe briefly and focusing more on the complication. So this is a 59-year-old woman who I know very well who had her first screening colonoscopy at age 53 in May of 2000, and surprisingly, a previously unsuspected cecal adenocarcinoma moderately differentiated was discovered. She had a normal physical exam, normal labs, normal CAT scan at the time. She went on to resection, which revealed the above pathology, and of 17 resected nodes, four contained cancer. The plan was to start adjuvant 5-FU leucovorin as soon as she was surgically healed. About two to three weeks after her surgical resection, she develops right lower quadrant pain, leading to a post-op CAT scan showing a small anastomotic leak. And at the time of that second CAT scan, a small lesion was seen in the right hepatic lobe, which in retrospect was present on the original pre-surgical CAT scan. The biopsy of that lesion revealed adenocarcinoma. So in July of 2000, now two months after her initial diagnosis, she has a liver resection and the placement of a pump. And in August, she begins a trial of hepatic artery FUDR for six months and concomitant arinotecan for six months. All therapy completed in February 2001 and scans, chemistries, markers, the whole thing indicated that she was NED. And was she functioning well at that time? Was she working was she ever? <laughs> She's our office manager and the mother of a local surgeon. <laughs> so she was working fine. <laughs> Two years later, in May of 2003, she develops moderate extra and <laughs> intrahepatic biliary obstruction. The pump is still in place. This slowly resolves with a two-year course of hepatic artery decadron and oral actagol. And by Two years later, now March of 05, the pump is removed. She is free of cancer, and the biliary obstruction is, for all intents and purposes, gone. And her most recent evaluation, just last month, she's NED. Just check with you. Did you ask her whether it was okay to mention that she would? I sure did. Perfect. I just want to let you know, we Absolutely. check one of those things. <laughs> okay. And she's proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll start with Steve. Can you go back to the anastomotic leak and then the complication from the infusion? Well, anastomotic leaks are fairly rare after a right hemicolectomy. Again, I can't comment. It depends on the technique used. Again, whether the anastomosis was stapled, hand-sewn. I mean, there are differences. It sounds like you've got a young, probably otherwise healthy patient who really shouldn't have a complication like that. I mean, the numbers in surgical literature are 1% or less. She had a few strikes. I mean, she worked for a physician, and her son was a physician, so already she was a setup. Did her son operate on her? Very interesting question. He refused to do the original surgery, the hemicolectomy, and when it came time for the liver surgery, she went down to Memorial Sloan Kettering. Okay. He was a wise man not to operate on oh, his yeah. own mother. Oh, yeah. We wouldn't have let him. Good. So the answer is, do those things happen? Yes. And you then treat it appropriately, deal with it surgically, repair the anastomosis. And again, most of those patients would actually recover quite well if they have a leak from a right-sided colon resection. It's a much different situation than somebody who leaks after a low anterior or a left-sided anastomosis. In terms of the problems related to the pump, what you described is pretty typical. Patients can get biliary sclerosis late, even after completion of therapy. We've seen the same thing in our experience 
experience, patients who've been off therapy for a prolonged period of time. Not infrequently, they will have some abnormalities of their liver function tests. Alkaline phosphatase being elevated after hepatic artery chemotherapy is something we watch very closely because we found that that can be a harbinger of some very low-grade inflammatory response ongoing in the liver that ultimately will become manifest as increased serum bilirubin and jaundice. And in that case, we do exactly the same sort of thing. We'll stent the patient, put them on decadron, and treat them as conservatively as possible. Having said that, we have had two patients in our experience who went on to liver failure and transplant because they did not respond to that type of therapy. And again, they were long-term NED after treatment and were considered a candidate for transplantation, one of whom did actually quite well, the other who unfortunately developed septic complications after the transplant. One of the questions that came up was when she completed her therapy, both HAI and systemic, and the pump had been in place for a period of time, when is the optimal time to remove the pump, if ever? When do you take your pumps out? In a patient who we're treating, and again, I'll just interject here, we very rarely use a pump as adjuvant therapy at MD Anderson. I won't say never, but rarely. And again, it's usually on trial. It's on a protocol-based therapy. In the patients we've done that, we will leave it in for two years after completion of treatment, maintaining the pump essentially just with you know heparinized saline or a glycerol solution in the pump. Once somebody gets two years out, assuming they're still doing well, we consider that the highest risk period, and we would recommend to a patient, if they want the pump out, that would be a reasonable time. The majority of our patients have opted to have it removed at that time. We have some patients who have such a high anxiety about recurrence of the cancer that they opt to leave it in. Well, that's the question. If the cancer then recurred in the liver alone, would you reinstitute pump therapy? Well, once the pump is removed, it's removed. No, of course. But one of the points about leaving the pump in was that it would be reutilized if there was a liver-only recurrence. There's very little data on re-challenge of the liver with FUDR in that scenario. And again, it would really depend upon the patient's liver function tests and how well they had tolerated the therapy before. Again, anecdotally, there are reports of patients being re-challenged with FUDR or other fluoroperimidine therapy who develop a marked either not only biliary sclerosis, but they can get an impressive chemical hepatitis. So it needs to be done, obviously, with some caution. And I agree with some of Neil's previous remarks any bump in the liver function tests in those patients, we immediately back down, put Decadron in the pump, and are very cautious with what happens then. So I have to tell you, in putting in hundreds of pumps, mostly in the mid to late 90s, I can tell you of only two patients that I know of who got re-challenged when they did recur. So then there's no point in keeping it in. Again, once you get a patient past the high-risk period, and we're all seeing the same thing. I know all of you in this room are seeing this now. We're seeing patients develop patterns of recurrence that we had never seen prior to the advent of active systemic chemotherapeutic agents. We used to use five to 10 years as sort of a magic period in colorectal cancer that, gee, if you got somebody past that point, even if they had metastatic disease, even if they had done well after a liver resection. And unfortunately, what we're now seeing is a subset of patients who we're following on our prospective database who are developing metastases in some very bizarre locations. We've had six patients who are more than eight years out from successful hepatic metastectomy in the last year alone show up with brain metastases from colorectal cancer. So again, what we're doing now is we're realizing, you know, folks, we got to follow you for life because we just don't know what's going to happen. Patients oftentimes get the idea that, gee, once I hit that five-year mark, 
I'm scot-free, everything's great. And unfortunately, we're educating and saying, well, we hope so, but we don't know because we're seeing some odd patterns of recurrence. Neil, comments on this case? Yeah, with regard to the removal of the pumps, in this patient, I'd be pretty comfortable saying I would never use pump therapy again insofar as she had a severe hepatic complication of therapy. Now, the time course of this patient's manifestation of their biliary toxicity happening several years out at one end of the spectrum, it's kind of way out there in terms of the typical time course for biliary sclerosis, although it often will happen after completion of therapy, typically not two years out. And that raises a question with regard to the use of Decadron in this setting. At what point has the scarring trumped an inflammatory reaction? There's initially this inflammatory reaction then results in scarring, which can progress, and presumably the scarring shouldn't respond to steroids. That said, I've had similar experiences where you really throw up your arms and you want to throw the kitchen sink at the problem, the bilirubin's going up, the alkaline phosphatase is going up, and although they haven't had the insult, the FUDR, for six, eight months, I will put Decadron in the pump as well, at least as a trial, and see if the process reverses itself and then try and rapidly taper them off. Once the process has smoldered and gotten to be as good as it's going to be, I'm comfortable taking out the pump once I've decided I'm never going to use it again for treatment. In terms of the peaking and resolution of the biliary toxicity, I believe in most cases, it's very unusual to progress to fulminant hepatic failure requiring transplantation, although that sometimes happens, but it's a very rare event. More often than not, even the people who have hyperbilirubinemia, it tends to burn itself out, if you will, and ultimately you end up with perhaps a bilirubin in the two to three range chronically, but it doesn't inexorably progress to fulminant hepatic failure. And as Steve indicated, sometimes, although this is a global effect on the liver, there are sometimes proximal lesions that can be endoscopically stented and accomplish some palliation of the jaundice that occurs in that setting. I want to ask both of you about the NSABP study, I believe it's CO9, that's randomized between pump and no pump, and then following that with KPOX chemotherapy. Steve, I want to ask you about what you think about the whole idea of doing this study. Neil, I want to ask you about the choice of KPOX for postoperative therapy. Steve? Well, I think the study at the time it was designed was reasonable and rational because we didn't have as much data on the long-term efficacy and response rates of some of the systemic agents. The study is not accruing great right now because many oncologists are concerned about the issues related to pump therapy. There's obviously a lot of data out there about FUDR-related biliary sclerosis. When it occurs, it can be problematic. You can have a patient who has problems for years after. I think people fail to realize that there are surgical complications that occur from putting a pump in. Even in the original publication in 99 in the New England Journal, if you read the fine print, only 21% of the patients in that trial who received regional chemotherapy completed the prescribed course of regional chemotherapy, either because of pump-related complications or because of FUDR-related toxicity. And our data shows the same thing. At Anderson, we find that we really don't complete a full course of adjuvant therapy in many of the patients who have a pump. 
it's a kind of a verbose answer to say that we are not proponents of pump therapy as an adjuvant at Anderson. We are actually, again, and Neil alluded to this, we're currently involved in several cooperative group trials where we're looking at, I guess, what you'd call more sandwich therapy in patients who have metastatic colorectal cancer in that if they have clearly resectable disease, they'll get three months of chemotherapy up front followed by resection or resection and ablation, and then followed by three more months of chemotherapy. Those are currently just phase two trials, but based on results of those, will then ultimately go to a phase three. So right now, we are not participating in any trials that involve pump therapy because of the high complication rate. Neil, what are your thoughts about the trial and also about the choice of KPOX? I think it's a research question. It remains a research question. I think the question itself is not totally moot insofar as even people who get systemic therapy as adjuvant, there's still a too high risk of local failure. And for that reason, I think regional therapy as a clinical trial question is a reasonable clinical trial question. Every study that involves a procedure versus no procedure has a challenge at the outset. And you just have to acknowledge that although the people designing the study around the table may have a lot of enthusiasm and say they'll put their patients on the study, there's always this sort of nagging concern about recruitment because the same people around the table think they know the answer. And the ability to have equipoise amongst investigators when some of them are doing a procedure in one arm and some are not, or would not be doing a procedure if their procedure, if the patient is randomized to the other arm, makes these studies very difficult to recruit to. That said, I think it's a reasonable research question. And honestly, this may be the last opportunity to do this with the acknowledgement that there is effective systemic therapy, but it's not 100% effective. There's still some good data that you can control disease in the liver better with hepatic pump therapy than with systemic therapy. So I think it's reasonable to pursue this. Now, in terms of the choice of systemic therapy, we could certainly argue as to whether capecitabine oxaliplatin has been proven to be as effective as an infusional 5-FU oxaliplatin regimen such as Folfox. The data so far suggests that it's comparable. The phase two data suggests that KPOX is comparable to what you see with Folfox. There is one randomized experience that's been reported preliminarily suggesting that they appear to be more or less equivalent in terms of survival and metastatic disease, but I still think the question isn't completely answered. And in the setting of potential biliary toxicity, capecitabine does have as one of its side effects, hyperbilirubinemia. It tends to be asymptomatic, tends to not interfere with therapy, but if you measure somebody's bilirubin every week on capecitabine, a recognizable minority of those patients, a real subset of those patients, will have elevated liver tests. And I think it remains to be seen whether that becomes a problem in patients who have had hepatic arterial therapy before receiving this treatment. Can you comment on the TREE 1 and 2 studies that were just updated at ASCO in that regard? So the tree studies 
are studies looking at a variety of fluoroprimidine oxaliplatin regimens, and the TREE-1 studies did not include bevacizumab. The TREE-2 studies were comparable studies in terms of design eligibility, in terms of frontline metastatic colorectal cancer, but included bevacizumab in those arms. What the combined data appear to show is that the different regimens of 5-FU or capecitabine and oxaliplatin have activity against metastatic colorectal cancer. There appears to be a higher response rate in the TREE-2 study where patients got bevacizumab compared to the TREE-1 study. These were not randomized comparisons of bevacizumab versus not. And these are phase two studies. So they're certainly not definitive, but establish the safety of giving bevacizumab with capecitabine and 5-FU oxaliplatin. Lowell? I just want to ask as far as local modalities go using stereotactic radiation. I'm one of the authors on the TREE study, and I had a patient who is now 82 who actually was treated with liver mets on the TREE-2 study, had a complete response, and eventually... Which arm did the patient get? He got full foxavastin, and this guy, despite the fact he was 82, had zero neurologic toxicity. He was on study for about a year. He finally went off when he decided to go back to Cape Cod because no one likes to be in Florida in the summer, and he insisted on going off study. There's no one there who was participating. And he did well, but then recurred in the liver and came back here. And he was really, although he's a very vigorous 82-year-old and acts like a 50-year-old, he really was not interested, although we think that we agree with you that hepatic resection is the best modality. He did not want to do that, didn't want to go anyplace else. Our radiation therapists in Fort Myers are active in the stereotactic radiosurgery with some of these new machines. So I wanted to get your feeling about that. This patient did undergo treatment of 10 gray, I think, times 3 of that recently and has been doing well afterwards, but obviously it's very soon to tell whether it's going to do anything for him. He was very interested in having something done to his liver, but was not interested in a surgical approach given his age. I haven't seen any really randomized data about this at all whatsoever. There's no randomized data is the problem, and it's all highly anecdotal. It's one of those things where we've got a new treatment and a new tool. That was my concern when I first started doing radiofrequency ablation. As soon as it got FDA approved, it took off and everybody started doing it, and we really didn't even have any survival data at that point. The same is true of some of these radiation techniques or even the radioactive spheres. There's a number of different ones of those that are being used to treat patients with both primary and metastatic liver malignancies. And again, there's really no randomized data to show that those are superior in any way. His age doesn't bother me. Our own data at MD Anderson shows that the survival, complication rates, everything associated with major liver resection has nothing to do with age. He's already kind of passed the test of time. You mentioned he's 82, but very vital, very vigorous. He's got good protoplasm. He's already proved that. So we would not hesitate. I've actually done liver resections even in patients in their early 90s, and they oftentimes get out before the young 30, 40-year-olds. We did this survey of the think tank people, and one of the questions was, who's the oldest patient in your practice who's going for hepatic resection. So what was your answer, Steve? My answer was 92. 92. Interesting. And he's still alive, by the way, and currently is 98. Wow. So again, the age doesn't bother me. And having said that, if the patient hears those numbers and says, thanks, doc, I don't want an operation, that's their right. I would have to tell them that there is no proven benefit 
We don't know the efficacy of complete tumor control with any of these radiation techniques. We just opened a proton facility at MD Anderson that we're going to start using to treat patients with unresectable disease because we think, again, there is some data that would suggest that proton therapy may be superior in a number of ways. But once again, there's no hard data to prove it. So patients have to understand that that's really being done on either no data or it should be done on a protocol, ideally, where you really are answering the question, following the patient longitudinally to know if there's a benefit. What about hepatic toxicity? Well, we've certainly seen that. Even with conformal techniques, you look at some of Ted Lawrence's data when he was treating hepatocellular cancer with the arc rotation conformal radiation, they were able to treat some fairly large lesions with minimal toxicity, but there are still toxicities. We've resected a number of patients who've had radiation of a number of different types and find that their liver does have areas of severe focal fibrosis. No matter how precise you think you're being with the radiation, you are going to get some radiation hepatitis and some localized cirrhosis as a result of that. And so it can make doing subsequent liver-directed therapies much more difficult. Neil? I agree with Steve that the approval process for devices and for systemic therapy is so different in that the standards and criteria are very different so that oftentimes these new procedures related to new apparatus are available and there's rapid uptake because they're cool and ought to work but you don't have the same sort of hard data with regard to efficacy and in particular comparative efficacy compared to other approaches that have been around before. And so I agree. I think that stereotactic radiosurgery under circumstances where you can't do other things like radiofrequency ablation or surgical resection makes sense, ought to be studied. I think it's a modality that's available now and we should be evaluating it. Dr. Weinstein? I'd like to ask you, what is your approach to the timing of liver-directed therapies, surgery, radiofrequency ablation in the Avastin era? How do you time surgical approaches given the requirements of stopping Avastin pre or post and not starting it until two months after major surgery? What do you do about that? Well, we pretty much follow the recommendation of avoiding bevacizumab for six to eight weeks before and after a surgical procedure. Now, with regard to a percutaneous procedure like radiofrequency ablation, we may bend those rules a little bit, but I do like my patients to be off bevacizumab for an extended period of time. Which may mean that you don't use Avastin for the few months prior to surgery. A couple of months. A couple of, yeah, a couple of months. And you may not start it until a couple of months after surgery. So but you can give the chemo closer. But you're giving chemotherapy without Avastin. Correct. The CO8 study allows you to start Avastin after four weeks. You don't have to wait any longer than that. But I've seen some reviews where they talk about liver regeneration being so dependent upon vascularity that you don't want to do anything to impede that. Well, and here we have essentially only experimental data. And again, I'll tell you, the trials that we have either as in-house trials at Anderson or the other cooperative group study that we're involved in is a SWOG trial, which is KPOX plus Avastin. It's a phase two. It's not a phase three study at this point. And for that, the patients get three months of therapy up front, but the Avastin is dropped out the last dose, and then they wait four weeks after the last dose of Kpox, six weeks then after the last dose of Avastin. And they then resume chemotherapy 
four weeks. And again, Avastin can be added in at that point. And the reason that we think we could add the Avastin back in at that time is we know a lot about hepatic regeneration. The majority of early hepatic regeneration and neovascularization occurs in the first seven to 10 days. So that if you start an agent after that time that may affect it, you're really not going to affect the neovascularization. So we really think it's more perioperative, or you have that rare patient who still has high circulating levels. And that's the thing that's frustrating for us. We think that there are probably a lot of patients who could have a dose of bevacizumab within four weeks of operation, but we know that there's such a variation in the circulating half-life of that drug that we've all opted to be conservative and say, well, since we don't have an ability to measure circulating levels of the drug, we just wait six weeks. We stop it and wait for six weeks. And having done that, I got to tell you, all of our patients at MD Anderson are placed on a prospective database. We've started that in 95. We've got close to 2,400 patients on it now, not just colorectal patients, obviously all comers, but well over 1,500 are colorectal patients. And now in the bevacizumab era, we're essentially seeing doing that type of thing over the last four years. We've seen no increase in any of the types of complications you would be worried about, hepatic insufficiency, bile duct leaks, bilomas. Again, so that is at least circumstantial supporting evidence that dropping the bevacizumab for six weeks before the operation is safe. So, Neil, you said that you would give six months of perioperative therapy, the bulk of which is now going to exclude Avastin. Well, not the bulk of which. Well, a lot of it. It's probably... couple of doses that you're missing because you're going to have a period of time off chemotherapy before and after surgery, a major surgical procedure anyway, regardless of whose hands the procedure is in. And look, I mean, the bottom line is that you're talking about two doses of a drug that is boosting the effectiveness of your other drugs, but it's not like you have any one drug that is in itself curing patients and missing two doses out of 12 is probably not going to be a life versus death decision there. I want to get the question for Dr. Rees, but just one quick question to you, Steve. In your database, there must be patients who have emergency surgery while on BEV. Do we know anything about the complications there? Well, in addition to the hepatobiliary database, you're right. We do have a primary colorectal database as well, and we are currently mining that right now, as a matter of fact, looking at that exact question. Our gut level impression, and I have to emphasize that's all I can give you right now because we haven't finished the data analysis, is that we have not seen a marked increase in wound healing problems. Admittedly, there have been a few patients who've probably had a diverting ileostomy or colostomy rather than an anastomosis in that scenario just because of the concern about what the BEV would have done for healing of an anastomosis. So certainly I think by being conservative, even if it means having to take a patient back for a subsequent reversal of either an ileostomy or colostomy, that's the route we've opted to go. So I won't comment on the fact that that was your gut impression. Dr. Reeves? I just have a management issue, probably more for Neil, that of a 68-year-old lady who two and a half years ago had a resection of a sequel lesion with eight positive nodes, had six to eight bowel movements postoperatively before starting any adjuvant chemo. We tried 5-FU-Lucavorin on a weekly program as an adjuvant setting, had to go to Imodium, Lomodo, and tincture of opium at different times to try and regulate her bowel. She had two admissions for dehydration, had another admission for pancreatitis, didn't really complete all the chemo, but ultimately we stopped at eight months. And as you would guess, we're talking now because she goes in for a 
laparoscopic cholecystectomy, and they found a small little lymph node adjacent to the gallbladder that did not appear enlarged, but by microscopic sectioning did indeed show metastatic adenocarcinoma. So we're talking about further treatment. We restage her. She has one unusual spot, an L2 vertebra that is positive by PET, and also by MRI shows deformities they think are consistent with metastatic disease, but no other distant disease. I can't even get her through 5-ethylucovorin, and I'm concerned about where do I go from here. Yeah, I mean, this is a huge management problem insofar as diarrhea is a primary toxicity with all therapies for colorectal cancer, all frontline therapies, if you will. Certainly, cetuximab as a single agent doesn't have a significant amount of diarrhea associated with it, but I think in this setting, you'd like to start with something that has more activity against the cancer than cetuximab by itself. It turns out, I guess the good news is that 5-FU and Leucovorin on a weekly schedule is the schedule that causes the most diarrhea of any. So it's plausible that this patient could tolerate a Folfox-type regimen with significant dose modifications. I would start low and inch my way up. When faced with a patient like this, as you were initially describing it with this one site of intra-abdominal disease and nothing else, I was thinking, what is the goal of my treatment here? Can we get a really prolonged disease-free interval? And would we be able to do a finite course of therapy, say, plan six months, and if nothing shows up, then stop and keep your fingers crossed for however long it's going to be? Then you describe this bony metastasis. And so it caused me to sort of reshift my focus focus in thinking and to ask myself the question, is there a circumstance under which we'd even be thinking radiation therapy to the spine as an intervention? And it got me to thinking and just listening to your presentation how the world has changed in terms of how we think about colorectal cancer. I mean, once we decide that a patient cannot be cured with surgery during their lifetime, which I think this patient falls into because they have bony metastatic disease, then you really asking yourself, how can I keep this patient alive for as long as possible with as good a quality of life as possible and off therapy for as long as possible during this time? Ten years ago, we would treat people continuously until they died, in essence. But now there's a growing accumulation of thought that it's safe to give patients breaks from treatment. And so this is the kind of patient who has minimal disease, although it's in two sites, who you might be able to undertake a plan of treatment for a relatively short period of time, followed by a treatment break. So perhaps you can get her through a 5-FU oxaliplatin bevacizumab regimen for a relatively brief period of time. And if she's still NED, except for bone, then you might even consider radiating bone if there's just one site of bony metastasis, if it's symptomatic at that time, and then sitting tight. Because this is the kind of person who you'd like to have off therapy for as long as possible because of their complications. Now, the complications you described do not suggest a DPD deficiency to me. And that's always something that comes up when there's a patient who's simply intolerant of 5-FU-based therapy. I didn't hear myelosuppression, mucositis, the sorts of things we think of with a true DPD deficiency. Dr. Glenn? Well, actually, that was my question. So as an extension of that, is there a way to get an assay of that? You start somebody on, you get a sense that this might be what you're dealing with, and in that patient, would you use a runatikian or would you... Right, so the scenarios that sometimes come up 
are the patient who receives their first dose of 5-FU in whatever setting, and they're hospitalized with prolonged neutropenia, mucositis, diarrhea, and you are relieved that the patient didn't die. That's the person who you really want to be considering a DPT deficiency. Now, in the old days, when we just had 5-FU alone, if they had a DPT deficiency, it didn't matter whether they had a DPT deficiency or not. They couldn't tolerate 5-FU. It didn't matter because subsequent therapy didn't involve 5-FU. Now it kind of matters because your subsequent therapy might involve 5-FU again. If they got fulfurious frontline therapy, well, you might want to be giving them Fulfox as subsequent therapy. So if that criterion is met, then you can measure DPD activity. And there are laboratories that do this that can give you a commercially available result. And if a patient has a true DPT deficiency, you really can't give them 5-FU because the dose of 5-FU that can be given is like 1 20th of a standard dose. And we don't know anything about giving combination therapy to somebody with a DPD deficiency. So it's a moot point because the person, you probably are not going to give them 5-FU by itself at that point. And so I would move to a non-5-FU regimen such as irinotecan or cetuximab or irinotecan plus cetuximab or irinotecan oxaliplatin as possible regimens. So there are other options for somebody that's intolerant to 5-FU. But to answer your question, you can measure it. Dr. Curry, 